Hello and welcome to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly podcast updating you on the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week uh, we're going to be talking about several things. Um, first of all, the GOP, the Republican Party in the United States, it's turned towards nationalism. And then I'm going to talk to you about uh, events in this week in fascist history talking about the last democratic election in Italy. First, we have a couple of updates on some things that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. Um, one is that the country of Hungary uh, extended its national lockdown indefinitely the other day. Uh, if you remember from last week, uh, the former prime minister and now dictator of Hungary, Viktor Orban, uh, recently gained, well, effectively dictatorial powers, the ability to rule by decree, um, so while this uh, indefinite extension of the lockdown might be good on an epidemiological level, uh, on a political level, it's extremely scary um, because we can fully expect it to be used to consolidate the power of him and his party. Um, in another country that I've been talking about, uh, Brazil, uh, they continue to lack any national response of any kind. Um, their right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, um, continues to be effectively the most denialist world leader uh, regarding the virus. Um, we'll see how that plays out uh, as the infection has begun to spread to some of the poorer and um, more generally victimized people in their country. Um, it's entirely unclear exactly how intense the spread of the virus will be there. Um, so unfortunately, that's something we're all going to have to see for ourselves. Um, finally, recently, uh, you've seen a lot of attention paid to um, Steve Bannon and some other right-wing figures in the United States uh, regarding their blame, uh, who they blame for the outbreak of the virus, uh, which, uh, no surprise, is, of course, China. And that brings us to the first thing that I'm going to talk about this week, uh, which is realignment. Now, I've mentioned realignment in previous episodes, but just as a reminder, realignment is a concept in U.S. politics uh, that refers to when one of the two major parties, the Republicans or the Democrats, significantly changes their political positions or like ideological framework. Uh, one of the most famous of these was in the 1930s and 40s, uh, as the Democrats sort of ceased to be primarily a Southern and conservative party, and with the victory of the New Deal coalition, emerged as an increasingly urban, increasingly northern, and increasingly diverse coalition. Now, in the present day, uh, we're seeing a realignment of the Republican Party along nationalistic lines. Now, this is something that uh, spurred the election of Trump in 2016. Uh, it's something that has been a major part of the rise of what we have been calling the alt-right. Uh, there's some debate about whether or not that term remains accurate anymore now that most of those organizations are defunct. Um, but the return of nationalism, open out nationalism, as a major part of U.S. politics is uh, something to be feared and paid very close attention to. Now, in the wake of the pandemic, uh, this nationalism has taken on a particularly xenophobic, uh, that is, um, anti-China um, and anti-people of Chinese ethnic descent, uh, tone. Uh, recently, uh, in the first Trump ad, uh, specifically targeting presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, uh, the entire thing is about China. The whole thing is about linking Biden to China, uh, suggesting that he's in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party, 
suggesting that his son has, you know, untoward business dealings with Chinese business people, uh, and also suggesting that he is, you know, on their side uh, in what the ad suggests is a major global conflict between the United States and China. Now, the conspiracy theories about the coronavirus pandemic are those that suggest that China either intentionally created the virus in order to cripple other countries' economies, uh, or that they intentionally misled other countries about the severity of the crisis in order to hurt them uh, play a big role in this. Uh, the idea is to connect Biden and thereby the Democrats and thereby their coalition to China, to the outbreak, uh, to suggest that they're in a sense responsible when, of course, it is the Trump administration and the Republican leadership in Congress who is most responsible for the delays that we've seen in any kind of national response uh, to the pandemic. Of course, there are other parts of this nationalist turn. Uh, the Republicans have been talking for a long time about, you know, quote, bringing the jobs home, um, trying to stop offshoring and blaming uh, corporate elites um, for destroying the American economy unfairly, you know, against the wishes of the people who should, quote unquote, uh, be benefiting from America's prosperity, who are, of course, assumed to be white men. Um, these are the, you know, stereotypical blue collar, down to earth people. These people were a major part of Trump's coalition uh, in terms of winning in 2016, but they were also at the rhetorical and ideological heart of his coalition. Um, we're seeing now an increasing turn to, well, you know, in two words, national socialism uh, from both Trump and some other members of the Republican Party. Uh, last week, Trump hinted at a possible expansion of the welfare state, uh, specifically Medicaid and Medicare, in response to the pandemic. Uh, it seems sort of surprised uh, that there were some people who didn't have health insurance in the United States and suggested that that was probably you know, unjust and should maybe be uh, ameliorated. And then recently, a Republican senator named Josh Hawley uh, suggested that the government should maybe pay people's wages uh, during the pandemic. Now, this is, of course, uh, actually a good idea. Uh, people do need to have their incomes protected at this time uh, as we enter, you know, a depression, uh, which has already been affecting the wages of millions of people in the country. Um, but the fact that it's the Republicans, as opposed to the Democrats, who are proposing this uh, should uh, be a cause for alarm. Basically, any time that a center-left party is outflanked on the left by a conservative or right-wing party, it's a really bad sign. Um, there is a word for that. Uh, it is fascism. Uh, as I've discussed before, and as will be clear to anybody who pays attention to fascist parties and their histories, They've actually had a really good track record in terms of providing for the people whom they believe to be deserving uh, in terms of welfare state provisions, in terms of workplace protections, uh, in terms of health care, in terms of scholarships, educational funding, that sort of thing. And so for the Republican Party, uh, which has been led by a, you know, austerity focused neoliberal coalition for the last generation, 30 or 40 years, uh, for them to be potentially turning in a direction that leads them to support the welfare state um, suggests that they could be 
are are in the process of becoming something uh, much more scary. Because in combination with the Republican Party's nationalism and its racist politics, this effectively means expanding the welfare state, uh, expanding government provisions for white people uh, is what we can assume they are effectively meaning uh, and the direction that their policies will go. And that spells a real danger uh, to millions of people in the United States um, and also for world history in general, um, because when the leading coalition of a country uh, becomes increasingly nationalistic and increasingly racist, uh, it has consequences for the entire world, especially when that country is one powerful and as dominant as the United States. I'm going to round out this episode talking about uh, an event in this week in fascist history. Uh, I don't know why I sounded excited about that. Uh, these are all really tragic and terrible things. Um, specifically, I'm talking about the last uh, multi-party election in Italy before World War II. Uh, this election occurred on April 6th, 1924, uh, so we're just clocking it in real close uh, to make it this week. Uh, this was an election nominally uh, amongst uh, multiple Italian parties. Um, the main victor in the election, of course, was the Italian Fascist Party, uh, which entered the election in a coalition with uh, primarily Christian Democrats and some lowercase l liberal parties. And their main oppositions were um, the People's Party, which was the Populist Party, uh, several, uh, well, two major socialist parties, and the Italian Communist Party, uh, all of which won seats. Um, however, just before this election, the Italian parliament had passed a law uh, which basically was specifically designed to give the assumed victor of the election, the Italian Fascist Party and its allies, uh, two-thirds of the vote in parliament, uh, which effectively was a law intended to grant them full, absolute control of the Italian parliament, uh, which it successfully did. Uh, the result of this election in 1924 was that Italy had no further real elections, uh, that is, elections where multiple parties contested the vote, until uh, after the war in 1946. Now, the famous March on Rome, uh, which is often referenced as the beginning of the Italian fascist government, had happened two years prior to this. Uh, I might talk about the March on Rome later, uh, but for now suffice it to say that it was effectively a propagandistic move on the part of the fascist party and Mussolini specifically uh, in order to demand a dictatorial rule of Italy. Uh, but it took him another two years to get it. Um, the Italian party was already dominant in the parliament at this time, uh, but it hadn't been granted the kind of sweeping dictatorial powers that the fascist uh, program demanded. Uh, it wasn't until uh, this election uh, that that kind of legal background uh, for their complete dominance of all Italian politics was really fully solidified. The lesson here is, of course, the one that I uh, keep repeating uh, throughout this podcast tenure, uh, which is that fascist parties that have taken state power have historically not done so through coups or through uh, showy indications of force like the March on Rome, um, they've done it uh, effectively, well, legally. Um, they've won elections. Uh, now, those elections weren't necessarily completely fair. Uh, this election in 1924 uh, faced a relatively significant amount of interference and intimidation on the part of the Italian fascist party, but it wasn't a complete sham. Um, 
other opposition parties won seats. Um, they contested the vote. People voted for them. Uh, what this means is that fascism doesn't come in the way that it does in the movies, you know, just sort of like all of a sudden dropped out of nowhere are all these people wearing shiny boots and uniforms and carrying submachine guns. Fascism grows like any other political movement. People organize for it. They achieve small victories. They achieve setbacks. Um, they come out of them having learned their lessons. Uh, they try things. They fail. They organize. They work. Um, they contest elections, they do some things under the table, uh, they're like any other political movement. And unfortunately, this means that a lot of the things that people wait for or expect from fascists aren't things that are going to come. Um, fascists adapt to their environment, uh, they use the tools that they have available to them, uh, whether it's a parliamentary democracy, uh, like there was in Italy, uh, whether it's a presidential democracy, like there is in the United States or much of Latin America, or if it is, you know, not a democracy already, um, as was the case uh, in several European countries uh, immediately prior to the Second World War. All right. Well, on that uh, dour note, uh, as ever, uh, I'm going to leave you for this week. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back next Friday with 15 more minutes of fascism. Thank you. Thank you.